Brian Chappelle in his exposition of Titus tells a gripping story, and I want to relate that to you this morning. It was a few years ago during El Nino's rains one Southern California morning. The danger of mudslides was high, and the danger became a nightmare for one family. While they were still in their home, a tidal wave of mud swept through their house and split it apart. Worse still, this couple watched as their sleeping baby was swept out into this merciless river of mud. As soon as they could, they began searching through the mud, through this river of mud, and they dug through the mire that blanketed their neighborhood all throughout the day, even into the night, but with no hope, no results. The next morning came, it seemed all hope was lost. How could the child have not been just simply buried? But then they saw a rescuer, himself covered with mud, and he was carrying a mud-kicked bundle in his arms, and it was the baby. Filthy, but alive. Now, can you guess what, what the mother did next? She clung to the child despite its filth, and she just embraced her child. Later, she washed away the mud, and she was most determined to keep her child out of the mud in the future. And as Chappelle goes on to explain, this is such a helpful story for helping us understand God's grace. So many people think that since they are saved by grace and not works, there's therefore no reason to do good works. Other people, they don't actually believe this, but that's, that's essentially how they live. That's how they operate. They live as if being godly, it's not that important. But for the Christian who rightly understands God's grace, such indifference is impossible. Like the river of mud, the filth of your sin was sweeping you out helplessly to an eternal death. But God jumped in, so to speak, to rescue you. He saved you and he embraced you despite your filth. You have to remember, when God saved you, you were his enemy. You were covered in sin, so to speak. But he brought you out of the mud of sin. He cleaned you off and now he wants you to stay clean. The grace that God has shown you should make you love God so much that you, you can't stand it when you get covered in mud again. Biblical grace should make you intolerant of the sin that's in your lives. Now, why be concerned about righteousness when we are saved by grace? It's because grace produces godliness. Grace produces godliness. Grace compels holiness. It's not a common thought, but those who have received God's grace they should be the ones producing more good works than anyone. Those who have been saved who have been saved apart from their own righteousness should in turn live as the most righteous people on the planet. This is what God's grace does. God doesn't save you by his grace out of the mud just so that you can return to it. He saves you by grace. He cleans you by grace and now he wants you to stay clean. True, once a person is cleansed by sin, they are truly and forever clean in God's eyes. But while we live on this earth, God does not want us to, to play in the mud. 
He wants us to live free from sin, and the grace we've received, it should compel us to do this. This message of grace is central in Titus, in Paul's letter to Titus. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We finished last week's message by pointing out that here in Titus 2 especially, there's all these lists, these standards for Christian living, one after another after another. There's a list for elders, there's a list for older men, a list for older women, a list for younger men, a list for younger women, a list for spiritual leaders, a list for those who serve, just one after another. And these lists form a a portrait of godliness for each respective category. Here's the thing, though. If that's all you focus on is these lists, that's all you look at, it can can almost have a legalistic effect. The Christian life just gets reduced to a, a simple list of do's and don'ts. You know, do this, don't do that, you'll be a good Christian. Act like this, don't act like that, and you're, you're pretty much a good Christian and everything's just fine. But that's not all there is to it. The Christian life is not a simple chore of do's and don'ts or a simple list of do's and don'ts. You remember how verse 10 ended last week? Paul instructs these slaves to be godly, but why? Verse 10. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. By living in an upright manner, these servants, they would make the doctrine of God our Savior look attractive. But what exactly is this doctrine of God our Savior that it says there in verse 10? What is that? In short, it's the gospel. It's, it's the gospel message. And Paul's going to elaborate on that message in the verses that follow, verses 11 through 14. Here's a connection I want you to get right here, though. This doctrine of God our Savior, this, you know, the gospel truth that's going to come up in verses 11 through 14, that right there, that's the basis for all of verses 1 through 10. Remember all those lists we studied? They all find their basis. They all find their foundation right here in the gospel truth of verses 11 through 14. Christianity is not just some religion where you're just trying to keep up appearances and live a certain way so that people think you're a good person. Rather, as we're going to find out today in verses 11 through 14, this is the real reason why you should strive for holy living, godly living before the Lord. I mean, why be the the godly man or the godly woman, like we've studied so many times already in Titus 2, because grace produces godliness. That's why. Grace that you've received produces godliness. You may think, sounds like we've heard this message before. You're right. You have. And you're going to hear it again, because Paul brings it up again in Titus 2. Because you can never hear it too many times. Grace produces godliness. Let's find out for ourselves. Let's read read with me now, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through, we'll include 15. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There's a lot going on in these verses, but it all starts at the top with one word, grace. Verse 11 it says, For the grace of God has appeared. And that's the foundational truth upon which everything else rests in this verse, in this passage in particular. Now, some of you, I'm certain, you come to church and you hear that word grace, it gets thrown out a lot, and you, you kind of know what it means, but you're not totally sure as to what grace even means. If that's you, I want to help you out. When we talk about grace here, we mean God's unmerited or undeserved favor toward sinners. Grace is God's act of kindness whereby he displays goodness to those who only deserve punishment. That's grace. And as verse 10 says, this grace has appeared. This word for appeared means becoming manifested in a way that was previously unseen. Word was used of the rising or the appearing of the sun every morning during the sunrise. Now imagine a person who has been born blind. They're, they're blind from birth. Never seen anything in their entire lives. But there's this new revolutionary procedure. You can give them back their sight. So they undergo the procedure, and he opens his eyes for the first time. And what does he see? Well, he sees a hospital room. But he rushes to the window. He opens the blinds. He looks outside for the first time. And then what does he see? He sees darkness because it's still night out. And for the time being, that's all he knows still is darkness. But just imagine the surprise and the wonder, if that were you, of just seeing the darkness slowly give way to light. And then all of a sudden, seeing the sun burst out of the horizon for the first time. The sun, it appears, and it just sheds its light. On everything. And that's how God's grace appeared to us. His light burst into our darkness and overcame it. God's grace has penetrated our moral and spiritual blindness. And this grace has appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ. See, grace is not just an attribute, in a sense, grace is a person. Jesus Christ fully personifies grace. He's grace incarnate, grace in the flesh. And he appeared, John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. This grace dawned when Jesus was born, and it climaxed when he died on the cross and rose from the grave, And in so doing, he chased the dark night of sin away in our lives. Hence, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. That's what it's all about. The grace of God has appeared. God's grace and kindness toward man has appeared in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it has opened blind eyes. That's what you need to understand, that you were the blind person. And I'm not talking to understand intellectually here. I'm talking about you get this. You've experienced this. I mean, if you were that blind person, I could describe to you a a sunrise 
wouldn't really make sense, though. You, you couldn't get it unless you just, you have to see it for yourself. But for those of you here, you know what I'm talking about. You've experienced this grace in your life. This is what you need to apprehend. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. God's grace has appeared. That changes everything. I mean, if you were that blind person and you were able to see for the first time in your life, would that not change everything? It may have changed your whole life. You, could not, you couldn't live the same way even if you tried. You're, just, you're different. You're changed. You can see. That's going to change the way you live. And for those of you here, you've experienced the grace of God, and you know it. You also know that change. God's grace has appeared in your life, and things cannot, and they will not, ever be the same. It just can't. You, you, you see now. You're no longer blind. You can see. And thus begins the Christian life. That's grace. I want to take it further. I want to take this further and and continue to expose you to the light of God's grace. And so from the rest of Titus 2, 11 through 14, I want to give you four reasons why grace is amazing. Four reasons why grace is amazing. I had them pick those songs on purpose, by the way, this morning, sing all those grace songs and amazing grace. I want you to see the full picture of why of God's grace on display in these verses. For all those who are confronted by God's grace, they're never the same. I want to show you why. Four reasons why grace is amazing. Start off with the first one. Grace saves. Grace saves. That's the first reason. Look at verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared. What's the first thing it does? Bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God has appeared. First and foremost, for man's salvation. That is, of course, that's our greatest need. Sin, it's like an incurable, fatal disease, and it just destroys human life. It's like the Ebola virus. You've all heard of the Ebola virus, the deadliest virus on the planet. You contract the Ebola virus, you're dead. You're as good as dead, you know it. There's no cure, there's no hope. What the virus actually does is it essentially disables your blood vessels from holding blood. And so you internally bleed to death. And there's no hope. There's nothing you can do about it. And sin sin is far worse than that. It puts you in a far worse and far more, more hopeless situation. When you contract sin, which you're born with, there's nothing you can do about it. You're going to die spiritually. And there's nothing you can do about it. There's absolutely no hope for you except for the grace of God. That's your only hope. God has the cure, and he offers you the cure free of charge. It's by his grace. It's by his favor. And furthermore, far from deserving this cure, we deserve our just judgment, our just spiritual death. But even still, he extends external life, or rather, eternal life, to the unworthy sinner. And so just listen, when was the last time you just stopped in your tracks and you just appreciated God's grace in your life? That's it. When was the last time you just stopped and thanked God and just worshipped him in your heart for this grace that he's, he's given to you already, that he's lavished upon you? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me. And keep a, a finger in Titus, but Ephesians chapter 2. 
for a lot of you. Maybe for most of you, this is nothing new. But guess what? I'm not trying to teach you something new here necessarily. I, I want these same old truths to just continually minister to you and to your soul. They need to. So don't tune this out here. Let the Word of God remind you of His precious grace that delivered you from a life of sin. And we see same old verses, Ephesians chapter 2. I've read these often. But just read them again. Let them sink in and, and just appreciate the grace of God that saves I just want to read these verses. They don't need any explanation, really. Let's just read them and be reminded of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, let's start at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. First three verses, that's all of us, without exception, dead in our sins. But, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm just making one point here. One point, it's a really simple point. Grace saves. That's it. Grace saves. Have you been saved by that grace? It's free, it's available. Back in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it says that this grace has appeared and it's brought salvation to all men. Now this sadly doesn't mean all men are saved, I wish. But no, this is not teaching universalism. Rather, God's grace makes salvation available to all classes of people without distinction. And I say this because right in the context, Paul just finished addressing all these different classes of people. The old, the young, men and women, slaves and free. The point is that all these people, regardless of their differences... God's grace, God's salvation, it's free, it's available to them without charge. doesn't matter who you are. There's no other Savior. There's no other means of salvation. God's grace has arrived. It's free of charge. And it brings salvation through faith in Christ alone. So, do you have that faith? Have you looked upon Christ in repentance and faith, believed upon him for your salvation, and receive that grace. It comes with a promise. John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. But just two verses later, it comes with a warning. He who does not believe has been judged already 
because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that's it. That's what your eternity hinges on. What you do with Jesus is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. So I call upon you to believe upon him in faith, in his person, in his work, and not just a, a simple intellectual way, really experience the grace where you know you once were blind, but now you can see. If that's you, if you've experienced the grace and the salvation that Christ brings, then then you can experience now the second reason why grace is so amazing. The second reason now why grace is so amazing, grace instructs. Grace instructs. First, grace saves. Now, secondly, grace instructs. Look at verse 12, back in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, first, bringing salvation to all men. Secondly, now, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So again here, grace, it's personified. This time it's a teacher. God, he's like our tutor. He trains us. He instructs us by his grace. And and we need that instruction. It's not long ago, my my three-year-old nephew, he decided he doesn't want to go to school anymore. Doesn't like preschool, doesn't like school. He just doesn't want to go anymore. And it's pretty amazing, right? Because I've never heard of a kid that doesn't want to go to school anymore. But what do you think his parents should do? I mean, should they just give in and say, okay, because they love him so much, they want whatever he wants. It's like, okay, I guess you don't have to go to school ever again. Should they do that? Of course not. And though he may not understand the purpose right now, he needs that instruction. He desperately needs that instruction. And likewise, we need God's instruction. And that comes through the instructor of grace. Sometimes God instructs us in the form of a blessing. A while ago, I was meeting with a guy, and his life was just going great. Everything was going great in his life. God was just blessing him by grace. His work, school, relationships, you name it. In fact, he was so overwhelmed by how much God was just being gracious to him that it drew him closer to God. It resulted in even more worship in his life because God was being so gracious to him. So sometimes God can instruct us and draw us to him by blessing. Other times, though, God uses trials by grace as our tutor. A while ago I preached here on Philippians 1.29, which says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And that word for granted in that verse, it literally means grace-gifted. God has, by grace, sent you trials to teach you. And sometimes you need the trial in your life to teach you, to pray, to teach you, to cling to God, to teach you to draw near to him. Jonah, for example, he prayed most sincerely when he was in the stomach of the whale. So be thankful for the trials in your life and learn even to appreciate the fire which burns away everything in your life that is not sold out to God. That is God's instructing grace. 
Back in Titus 2, though, what is God's grace instructing us to do? Do you see that in verse 12? I mean, look there. What's his grace instructing us to do? First, to deny. To consciously, purposefully deny sin. We've been saved by grace. Christ's light has shined on us. But even still, we still have dark corners of sin in our life. Grace breaks the dominion of sin in our lives, but we still must daily deny it. We still have to fight. Many Christians today, they won't deny themselves anything. Because of God's grace, they feel they can do whatever they want. And furthermore, the the practice of self-denial is totally absent in our self-indulgent society. I mean, in America, the greatest sin is to deny yourself, to not do what you should do or have the right to do or, or whatever. But God's grace instructs us to daily practice self-denial. You need to learn that lesson, the power and the importance of denying yourself. What should you deny? Verse 11, ungodliness, or rather verse 12, ungodliness and worldly desires. Ungodliness equals immorality plus idolatry. Worldly desires are the impulses of your flesh. So put them together. We're talking about sin and sinful desires. That's what you should deny. And deep down, you have sinful desires. And you know it. Your flesh desperately wants to sin. You, your flesh desperately wants to sin. And it will try and control you through these incredibly powerful urges, sinful desires. And you know, guess what? Because of your fallen nature, these sinful desires, they may be with you until you die. They may be with you your entire life on this side of eternity. So what should you do about it? Should you just forget about it? Give in? Give in to them? God's grace is instructing you here to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And God's grace will give you the strength you need to do that. It's not easy, but he he will give you the strength. Like I said, the world would never have you deny yourself. That's so puritanical. You should never deny yourself, the world would say. But God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans 1.18. So therefore, deny these things. They're, they're neither good for you, nor do they truly satisfy you. And at the end of the day, you have to remember, there's just two options. You either serve and follow Christ, or you serve and follow the world. You can't have both. You can't go in both directions. It's like 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which reads, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Forever. It's black and white. You must choose. Deny or not. Follow God. Follow the world. But first, if you've received God's grace, it's, in, it's instructing you to deny. First, to deny. Secondly, God's grace is instructing you to live. Do you see that in verse 12? 
Secondly, instructing you to live, live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is the familiar put off, put on scheme in scripture. You must deny, you must put off ungodliness, at the same time put on godliness. Grace demands that the unrighteousness in your life is replaced with righteousness. Three things are mentioned here. Live sensibly, live righteously, live godly. First, live sensibly. We've heard that word many times in Titus. Sensibly. Refers to a life of self-control and restraint. Secondly, live righteously. This refers to your just and good behavior. And then live godly. You know what that means. Just live in a manner pleasing to God. And so we see in every dimension of life, grace instructs us. The inward dimension live sensibly, the outward dimension, live righteously, and the upward dimension, live godly. And then notice, verse 12, this grace instructs us in the present age. God gives you his grace in the here and now. He doesn't just save you so you can enjoy heaven later. But he gives you daily grace so that you can live a transformed life right now in the midst of a wicked world. So many seemingly fail to recognize that God's grace places demands on your life. His grace is free, but it costs you everything. God wants your life totally devoted to him, and his grace will produce that. His grace saves you not only from the penalties of sin, but also from the power of sin, and that grace now instructs you to live, in, live accordingly. If you find yourself out there not living accordingly, not denying on a habitual basis, if you find yourself out there going after the world and still being completely dominated by your sin and your sinful desires, you have to ask yourself, are you still blind? Has God's grace really dawned in your life? and broken forth and change you. Because it will. God's grace instructs, changes you, and there's nothing you can do about it if you've received it. Secondly, grace instructs. Third reason now. The third reason why grace is amazing. Grace enables. Grace enables. Verse 13. It says, Looking... For the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. So first, grace saves. That's in the past. Secondly, grace instructs. That's in the present. Thirdly now, grace enables. And this is talking about the future. God's grace enables us to anticipate that future coming of Christ, our Savior. And it's so important that we do joyfully look for his coming. You've all heard of the Battle of the Alamo. If you don't remember the details, there's roughly 200 Texan soldiers were holed up in the Mission at Alamo, or the Alamo Mission, when roughly 2,400 Mexican troops invaded. And just pretend you were there. Those are your numbers, 200 versus 2,400. Those are your numbers. What would that be like? You're surrounded... You're outnumbered, but that's not the worst of it. The worst part is that nobody's coming to help you. You're on your own. 
There, there will be no rescue mission. You're on your own. Nothing is more demoralizing than that. Nothing can so quickly zap the fight out of a soldier than to have no hope like that and to know it's over. And how sad the Christian life would be if, if we likewise had no hope. But we do have a hope. And we do have a rescue coming. And though we may still be trapped in, in enemy territory, we can rest assured and joyfully long for our Savior is coming. And this is what's called the blessed hope. Now, this doesn't mean we should stop fighting in the here and now. Just sit around and, and wait for our rescue. You can't just lay down your arms and stop fighting and wait. The enemy will overrun you. Rather, while keeping up the fight of faith, at the same time, yearn for that blessed hope and let that hope keep you fighting strong. Titus 2.13, it mentions the appearing of Christ. This word for appear was used by the, the ancient Greeks to speak of you know, the, the appearing of one of their gods. Just poof, there he was. Here it's talking about the appearance of Christ and his second coming. When Christ came the first time, it was to reveal God's grace. When he comes the second time, it will be to unveil God's glory. And when he comes that second time, it will no longer be as the, the lowly servant in his humiliation, but rather as the king in his exaltation. If you were with us on Sunday nights, you know the verse, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, talks about that time when he will be exalted. For this reason also God highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the point. Look, everyone's going to confess Christ. Everyone, in the end, will confess Christ. The difference is that God's grace enables us to confess him now before it's too late. There's going to be a lot of people who will confess Christ from hell where it won't make a difference, for them at least. But grace enables us to confess him now, to worship him now, to enjoy him now, and to joyfully anticipate his return. Whereas the world looks upon Christ's return with fear, we get to look upon his return with joy and with hope and with a smile. And it's all by grace. That this is us, that we've been enabled to see Christ like this, I mean, how can that not drive you to worship him and to thank him, to live for him? And back to the military analogy, knowing the fact that our king is on his way, he will return, that should spur you on to, to dig in and to fight even harder and to hold on. In the end, only those who fight such a fight and who long for the king will see him. Just turn a couple pages backwards to 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's just it's right there. 2 Timothy 4, and look at verse 7. This is what you need to be able to say. Paul is saying this at the end of his life. He knows he's about to be executed. This is the end. 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8. I have fought the good fight. 
I finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. His appearing. Before we move on here, quick rabbit trail back in Titus 2.13. I want to point this out just so we don't gloss over it. This is actually one of the clearest texts in all of Scripture where Jesus is straight up called God. Did you know that? Did you see that in the text? If you're not there, turn back to Titus 2.13. He's called our great, quote, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, according to Granville Sharp's rule, which I'm sure you all know, because you all know Greek grammar. Uh, you're all, I know you know that. Whenever you have two nouns of the same case joined by a conjunction, so two nouns, God and Savior, they're in the same case, they're joined by the con- conjunction, God and Savior. And when the first noun has the definite article and the second noun, second noun does not, in the Greek that's the case, then both nouns are referring to the same person. Now, if you just fell asleep, let me tell you what I... I'll just make the point. According to the grammar, both of these words, God and Savior, they're referring to Jesus. That's the point. According to just the rule of Greek grammar, both of these nouns are referring to Jesus. Hence, he is God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And the point is that's who we're looking for in our return, not just our Savior, but also our God. And some may say that Jesus is never referred to as God in Scripture, but they just need to study some more. Titus 2.13, Romans 9.5, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, 1 John 5.20, John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.18, John 20.28. There's more. But here we see a, a pretty clear example of the fact that we're waiting not just for our Savior, but also our God, Christ Jesus. Let's move on to the last reason, the fourth The final reason why grace is amazing. Fourthly, now grace purifies. Grace purifies. Verse 14. I'll start verse 13, though. He says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Grammatically, every verse in this whole passage, 11 through 14, hangs off of the beginning of verse 11. For the grace of God has has appeared. That's the root. And here in verse 14, we kind of see it come full circle. God's grace has appeared. It's brought salvation to all men. That salvation has come through Christ, who, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. And that's, it's really just talking about here the, the substitutionary atonement where he took our place. And here it speaks of Christ redeeming us. To redeem is to obtain someone's release by the payment of a price. You pay a price, you obtain someone's release. So what was the price? What was the price of our release? It was him. He, he paid himself. The ransom price was his very own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 reads, You were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold or 
from the futile way of your life, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Do you cherish that? Do you cherish that blood? And does just thinking about the ransom price paid for you drive you to a level of life to his honor? You know, in some cultures, if someone saves your life, you become their servant. You live for them because your life was in their hands and, and they saved you. Christ saved us eternally and it cost him his blood, his own life. And so how can we not live for him now? He gave himself to free us from lawless deeds, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous unto good deeds. And that's the point. Look, you don't belong to you anymore if you belong to Christ. You don't belong to you. If Christ is your Savior, what does the text say? You're his possession. You belong to him. And so you can't help now but live for him. This is why I meant earlier. His grace is free, but it costs you everything. And it changes everything. Romans 6, 12-14, just listen along. It says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. It's, it's just the same thing. Because of the fact that you're under grace, you've been saved by grace, this should change your life and produce that godly living. This is what grace says. Christ, by grace, saves us. He redeems us from slavery to sin, but it doesn't stop there. Because after he takes our shackles off of our old master, he shackles us to himself. And we're still slaves. As Titus 2.14 goes on to say, he then purifies for himself a people for his own possession. The same blood that was shed to redeem us was also shed to purify us. And these two words, redeem and purify, they're like two sides of the same coin. Whereas redeem speaks of Removing Christians from sin. Purify speaks of removing sin from Christians. They're two sides of the same coin, and Christ wants both. And that's the effect that the grace of Christ should have in your life. It should purify. It should purify you as you remember him. As you recall the the precious blood spilt on your behalf, as you recall the grace already poured out upon you, It should stir up within you a great drive to to serve the Savior and to give him everything. And as you await the blessed hope, like we just read about, it should make you, you want to purify yourself for his coming. And that's exactly what 1 John 3, 2 through 3 says. Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And, verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Grace has saved us. 
has instructed us, has enabled us, and has purified us. And now Christ, who's done so much work for us, wants us now to get to work, like we've said many times. You're on company time now. You're on purchase time. Your time does not belong to you. And so he says, use it. Be zealous, he says, for good deeds. Just be passionate to serve, to serve him in good deeds. This is Paul's major thrust in Titus. There were all these believers on the island of Crete, apparently saved, but just kind of sitting around, not really doing anything. But it's time for them to, to get to work and to honor the Lord with their lives. Earlier I read, we read together Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. I left out verse 10 on purpose, but there is another verse. After verses 8 through 9, you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So we start off saying this grace, this is the foundation for the entire Christian life. I hope you get it now. It's the point I was trying to make at the very beginning. This grace, it's the foundation for everything. Everything we studied back in verses 1 through 10, all of Christian living, this is why you live the way God calls you to live. Because he opened your eyes. He gave you his grace. You can't help it. Grace produces godliness. And God wants all of his people, old, young, male, female, slave, free, to worship him by being zealous for good deeds. So don't forget this. Don't forget the amazing grace revealed in Titus 2, 11 through 14. Why fight the fight? Why run the race? Why persevere? Why, why keep going? Because of this amazing grace. Because of the one who saved us. Because of the, the precious blood Spilt for us. That's why. That's why you keep going. And how can we return to our old ways? Like the child saved from the river of mud. How can we return to that which aims to kill us? Instead, let's leave here today singing God's praises, worshiping him with our lives for the amazing grace that saves us, instructs us, enables us, and purifies us. Pray with me. Father, we we do thank you for the amazing grace that you have given us and we can't even comprehend the whole of it. We've been lavished. You have overflown us with amazing grace, overwhelmed us, Lord. We thank you for this grace. We cherish it, we worship you for it, and we're different because of it. It's changed our lives, and so now we just offer up our lives as living sacrifices to you. Our lives are yours, and I pray for all here that they likewise would give you their life. They would just become radically devoted to you. No more lukewarm Christianity. No more one foot in the world and a foot in the church, Lord. May they just be confronted with your grace and choose whether they will follow you or follow the world. And by your grace, Lord, may they indeed follow you and give them and give you their lives. 
We pray for your work of grace that would continue in us. We, we need it, but we, we already can thank you in advance because you've already blessed us with it. May we just live for you and worship you as this week goes on, testifying to the world that grace changes us, that grace saves, and may they receive the same grace. In your name we pray. Amen.